Welcome to the Clinical Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, we are able to make science more accessible and understandable. All right, welcome everyone to the May 2023 edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Special thank you again to our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO for allowing us to be here today. I'm Rimley Crow, and today I'm joined by Dr. Tony Fernandez, Dave Page, Jeff Rollman, Michael Caduce, and Dr. Bill Toon. And as a reminder for you all at home, the name of the article we are reviewing is Perceptions of Pre-Hospital Care for Patients with Limited English Proficiency Among Emergency Medical Technicians and Paramedics. And this is published in JAMA Network Open. And that open part is actually really important because it means all of you can access this article for free. It is an open access journal, and you can access not only the article, but all of the supplementary material for free on the JAMA Network Open site. Uh, as always, our discussion is going to be paired with an article that will come out later in uh, EMS World, and this is written by our own columnists, Dr. Tony Fernandez and Michael Caduce. The name of the column is called Journal Watch, and I encourage all of you to go check out this one and previous versions at emsworld.com under the category of education and training. And I want to thank the audience for joining us today. We've got quite a crowd. I want to remind you all, if some of you are new to this podcast, you can use the chat feature, type in questions anywhere, anytime. We'll bring them into the conversation as we go. Um, and those are all of the housekeeping rules. Uh, there is a link in the chat if you want to go to the article right now. And without further ado, I think we'll just go ahead and kick it off. The authors did wish to join us today. Unfortunately, an emergency came up. So we are going to do our best to to represent them well on this. This is a really important and exciting topic, and I'm very glad and hope we have a great discussion with you all in the audience as well about this paper. So first of all, we always start off with the why, right? Why is this study a big deal? Why is this topic a big deal? Well, there's quite a plethora of research out there saying that patients who have limited English proficiency experience worse health outcomes and are less likely to receive the standard of care. And this is not unique to the pre-hospital setting. We see it throughout the healthcare continuum, but there was pretty limited research on this topic as it pertains to EMS. And we can talk about, you know, intention and, and not intentional and systemic drivers and all of these things are important, but the evidence is pretty clear here that people who aren't fluent in English receive reduced quality of treatments. And Dr. Jamie Kennell actually took this on as part of his doctoral dissertation and found similar findings to what's, what's out there in this regard. And so it's something that definitely warrants further study. I think that this study took a really unique and interesting approach. We'll talk about the methods. It's a qualitative study of EMS clinicians. So their objective was to identify the EMS perception of what are the barriers, what are the facilitators when it comes to providing quality pre-hospital care for patients who have limited English proficiency. And so with EMS as a first medical contact in that healthcare continuum, a lot of times, this is a really critical point where we have an opportunity to go upstream and make a difference. And so with that, I, I'll bring on the other panelists, invite you all and Let's dive in a little bit to first the how. How did they do this study? Let's talk about what kind of study this was and, and what was their approach. And Dr. Fernandez, let's turn it to you. Yeah, so this was really interesting. And this is uh, these are some of my favorite studies, and we don't often get to explore these on our uh, webinar. So I'm glad we do. This was a qualitative study. And this is where they took uh, a, a bunch of EMS professionals. They took EMT firefighters and paramedics, and they put them in a room uh, and had some focus groups and tried to tease out their experiences. And what they call this was a, a phenomenological qualitative methods. And I, I thought that was really interesting. So I did a little research on that. And um, this is a this is a qualitative research method that focuses on describing commonalities of a lived experience within a particular group. So you can kind of uh, tease out the the true um, the the true phenomenon is what it is what it is and of the human being experience is how it's described. Um, 
So they 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 conducted a bunch of focus groups and they wanted to see a, a few different things. They wanted to see how um, how the EMS providers felt about caring for these patients, uh, their overall impressions of their interactions. They wanted to look at barriers and facilitators to communication, um, barriers and facilitators to providing care, as well as some ideas to improve care. And uh, I think that they did a, a really good job and the, uh, there's a lot that we're gonna dive into here. Absolutely. Like any study, when we start off thinking, you know, about how this might apply, how these findings might uh, affect other scenarios, other situations, we talk about study setting a lot. So why don't we dive in a little bit to what was the population of the study? How did they sample EMS clinicians? And what do we know about the system where the study took place? Yeah, so and that's that's a great uh, dive in. So we this took place in King County, Washington in 2018. And the authors state that uh, around that time, 10% of residents uh, had limited English proficiency. 28% uh, of residents spoke another language uh, other than English in their homes. So uh, this was a pretty diverse uh, population and a good place to do this, this type of study. The most common non-English languages were Spanish, uh, all dialects of Chinese, Vietnamese, uh, Eastern African languages. They called uh, uh, two of them that were named were Somali, and uh, I'm going to butcher this. Um, you want to help me here, Dr. Crow? M. Amharic, I think it is. I apologize because uh, I butchered that so bad, and Korean. Um, but they were uh, a whole host of, of folks who, who English was, was not their primary uh, language. And when we're talking about the EMS agency, this is a uh, basic life support is dispatched first for medical calls, and then advanced life support can be dispatched for higher acuity patients, um, and BLS can add or cancel ALS uh, based on the patient presentation. So it was a diverse population, um, and in in and the providers. Interestingly, um, when they look at selection of providers, uh, we're not nearly as diverse as the population they serve. Uh, they, so again, they recruited firefighter EMTs and paramedics, and they were sampled purposefully from stations that respond uh, to where patients who have limited English proficiency are common, was how the authors described it. And when they looked at um, the the race and ethnicity of, of providers, they, they had self-reports of um, American Indian, Alaskan Native, Asian, uh, Black African American, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders. So they looked at all different types of races, uh, not just for the patients and, and the population that they serve, but they wanted to tease this out for the providers to make some um, uh, estimates, estimations on how they're, they're represented in their community. So I thought that that was a really interesting thing. I agree with you on, on that's an interesting thing. And it was important data to collect one more key point that stood out for me and how they went about recruiting is that, you know, they took a purposeful approach to who they requested to attend these interviews. And they picked the stations that served the areas where there were greater proportions of the population that had limited English proficiency. So looking at those who were serving a population where this might be more likely to occur, where these interactions may be more likely to occur, was an important aspect uh, in how they went about getting people to participate in their focus groups. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that um, picking the right setting for, for a question like theirs is is infinitely important um, if you want to tease out these these good themes that they were uh, they were looking to to gather from their work. Absolutely. And so we talked about the study setting. Now you kind of mentioned some of their measures, but I think it's worth diving into a little bit more on what is it that they were looking to measure in particular? They had some domains. Yeah, so there were four domains where they, they were overall that they were trying to tease out. Um, and what they did was they had, they called them semi-structured focus groups. Um, and they conducted these focus groups from July to September of 2018. Uh, and they did it at the stations uh, during shifts and they conducted a few focus groups that were, were, it was really interesting the way they did this. They conducted a few focus groups that were only EMT firefighters, 
a uh, few focus groups that were only paramedics, and then the rest of them they did they mixed the provider groups. So I thought that that was uh, an interesting way to do this. And the idea was to tease out these four domains. The first was overall impressions on the interaction with patients with uh, limited English proficiency. Just just get an idea of, of how these calls went and what the providers felt about these calls. Uh, the second were barriers and facilitators to communication. So in other words, you know, what makes it difficult to communicate with these patients and what helps in communicating with these patients? They did the same, looked for barriers and facilitators to providing care. And um, finally, they looked at ideas for improving care for all of these patients. And um, they had a standard uh, interview guide, which is available online. It's fantastic. You can go on and see if, uh, if you are looking to replicate something like this in your own system. They um, really did a great job of sharing the information and, uh, and how they actually did their, their analysis. So all, all that's available online. And they, they, uh, the focus groups, this is, I, I, I can't stress enough how much work goes into holding all these focus groups. Um, this is this is a lot of work and to tease out all all this information they they recorded it and then not only did they record them and go through them but they transcribed them uh, verbatim to uh, to then do the analysis. So that's a uh, I commend the authors for this is a whole lot of work to get to get these really important results. I'll reiterate that as well. It, it, you know, often, oh, we'll do a qualitative study. That sounds easier. I would argue <laughs> the opposite as a quantitative person myself. I would argue that Absolutely. qualitative is actually much more challenging and it allows us to explore things we wouldn't otherwise see in quantitative research. It allows us to dig deeper into these themes and these domains. And one of the really powerful things that can come out of these studies is it'll help us identify drivers that we can go out and initiate quality improvement initiatives around or alter the systems in which we're functioning. Because I think in EMS, we all wake up trying to do a great job and it should be very disturbing to us that despite our best conscious efforts, the data say that we are providing worse care to patients with limited English proficiency. And so this should be a really powerful study for all of us to look at, well, what are the systems that are giving rise to these results? Because it's probably not the individual intention. Uh, so with that yes. lens, you know, we can, we can take a look at what, what it is they found. I think the analysis you hit on was a really important point when we're talking about qualitative analysis, there's a lot of science behind this, this thematic iterative analysis. It's not easy to create these buckets. I know we look at, we're going to look at the tables when we get into the results and it seems so simple and so straightforward, uh, but the amount of work that went into that shouldn't be understated. It was a huge achievement and a lot of really great work. The study yeah, and, to keep in mind too with this. It was before COVID, so we should, you know, open with that lens as well. Yeah, and what was I thought was really interesting was they they looked for what they called thematic saturation, right? So they had they held focus groups until they were able to come up with their domains, uh, their themes, and then um, they held two more just to make sure that um, all of the same themes kept coming out and there, there, there wasn't anything new. So I, again, tremendous amount of work and kudos to the authors for, for getting all this done. Absolutely. All right, other panelists, anything in the methods that we wanna talk about, or we can just dive right into some of the, the themes that were uncovered. I was just gonna jump in and again, commend the authors on this great work. And what I also saw, which was excellent, was this isn't just researchers that are, you know, stuck in a ivory tower all day long and don't know anything about EMS. The main interviewer actually was a EMT. And I would think that makes a huge difference, having an interviewer who can kind of be on the same page, even if it's not someone who's a firefighter, EMT, or medic, having someone who could speak this language and relate is super important in these qualitative studies since so much of it is about that group dynamic and um, getting as much information and rapport out in these sessions. That's and also really wanted to great. commend all the participants in this uh, study. So all the firefighter EMTs and paramedics who were not paid for their time and they were on shift, I believe, but they still graciously volunteered to share their honest thoughts. 
Absolutely. And I think that's such a great point in how, you know, we talk about survey research or in this case, focus group research, how the questions are worded and who's administering the questions can have a huge influence on results. So when we read the results of a survey study or a qualitative study, that's something really important to keep in mind. And again, Tony mentioned already, but the author should be commended. They made that interview guide publicly available as part of the article. It's on the website under supplemental material. And they were very thoughtful about how they pulled these groups together. They were thoughtful about who the interviewer was, that it was somebody with street cred, if you will, uh, as well as who was in the groups. So would there be a hierarchy bias if we include EMTs with their medics? Would they feel intimidated to speak their minds? So one group of all EMT firefighters, one group of just paramedics, and then a mixed group. I think all of that was really important. And then uh, Tony mentioned they they conducted groups until they hit that saturation point of, have we exhausted all the ideas that are probably going to come out of this group? Uh, so I, I think really fabulous methods on this. And we, we should keep those in mind as we go into these results. Like with any study, we think about where it took place, how it was done as we go into the results. And so I'm going to turn it over to Jeff. Let's let's talk a little bit about what they found. We, For those of you who are asking in the chat, we do have some slides. These are just supportive material. This is intended as an open discussion around the paper more so than a presentation of any means. Um, but we do want to talk about you know, what, what ended up happening. What did the authors find? Yeah, thank you, Dr. Crow. So going into the first table one, uh, which just goes over the study participants. So 39 total participants in the study, and these are all Seattle Fire EMTs and or paramedics, and about two-thirds of those are firefighter EMTs and then paramedics, and we can see broken down uh, since th this is a tiered system, unlike some systems which might be all ALS, for example, the vast majority of calls in Seattle are only attended to by firefighter EMTs. So I think it makes sense that most of their EMS participants were firefighter EMTs here. And then looking at this, we can see that, um, I mean, of course, there are some you know, major disparities, but none of this is surprising, unfortunately. So males, of course, uh, dominate uh, the firefighter EMTs, a bit less so paramedics. Age, um, age is in the mid 40s. I thought time of EMS experience was interesting. I didn't think it would be this high, that the median um, uh, EMS tenure was 14 years for EMTs and 25 years for paramedics. And I was thinking, hmm, maybe they should have already hit their retirement age and they would no longer be employed. So I thought it was great that they there were many folks who had um, long tenures in EMS and we're still working in EMS. Um, race and ethnicity, no surprises there. Um, and then language spoken in addition to English. So not many of these folks were bilingual, but about 15% did speak Spanish and then some other languages as well. So again, much of this is these participants are not representative of the greater community in Seattle, but this unfortunately is the norm in EMS providers in general. So. Yeah. And I, I think that's a good point is that, you, so we would ask ourselves, you know, reading this, oh, does this mean they got a bad sample? No, probably not. This is what we see in the EMS workforce. And I'll do a plug for a scoping review that was just published. And it is also open access in pre-hospital emergency care that was looking at the, all of the literature available. So scoping review takes into account all of the literature on a topic, looking at the EMS workforce demographics. And so this is very much in line with the research that is out there. And we'll talk about it when we get into the discussion more about, you know, what should we be doing with this? Is, is there something more that can be done? Uh, and we have a, a great question in the chat I'll bring in from Brooke. Can we talk about participant size? Is there some magic number for a good size group for this kind of study? It seems too small to get meaningful results. There's a quantitative person and I love it because I'm that same way. Um, I, I can take first swing at this and I will invite my, my colleagues panelists to comment as well. When it comes to qualitative research, and I don't think there's a magic rule or a rule of thumb, but you think about when you're in a chat, you don't want to have so many folks as to where it's intimidating to speak. So generally, group sizes of 8 to 12 work well for, to facilitate conversation and have everybody have a voice. 
Um, and then they did multiple focus groups of these sizes. And what you're looking for there is not to get you know, inferential statistics. We're not trying to infer the entire population from this group, but what we're, what we're looking for in a qualitative study is thematic saturation. So you're looking to host these groups until no new ideas surface that we've reached that point of, okay, all the themes that we're going to emerge have emerged. And that point can be very different depending on the study topic. So in this group, they said that they did perform the study groups and perform the analysis to realize, hey, we've had a couple of groups, we haven't had any new themes proposed, we've reached saturation, it's okay to close the study. But in terms of, you know, trying to make an inference and say, oh, well, then 15% of all Seattle EMS clinicians speak Spanish, that would probably not be an okay thing to infer from this group, because a couple of different reasons, one, small sample size, and two, this sample was purposefully selected from clinicians who serve the areas with higher populations of limited English proficiency. And it's feasible to think that, well, the clinicians who are at those stations may be different from clinicians who are at stations that don't serve uh, as diverse a population in terms of language. So that's just something to keep in mind. But again, the goal here is not to say, oh, we're trying to extrapolate to the entire population. We're just looking for to, to gather all of the themes that are available on this topic. I thought that was spot on, Dr. Crow. And one thing I've, I'm working on the thematic analysis right now as well, and one of the things I keep hearing is it's not the number of people saying it. When we're selecting a certain group, it's the depth at which they're saying it. So instead of counting the number of people saying something, we want to know the quality for what they're saying. That's what's going to build our thematic analysis and the result that comes from it. So uh, that always um, brings true in the back of my mind as well. And that's a great point. The goals are different, right? So in, in your, you mentioned it's spot on. The goal here is depth in exploring a topic, which is the beautiful part of we wouldn't get this depth if we were just measuring in terms of quantitative data. This is to explore a topic fully versus the goal of, oh, I really need to quantify something so that I can go about changing it. Um, so again, this is a really robust approach to a very difficult topic. And I'm excited to dive into what the themes were that they found. Uh, and again, they followed through the four domains really methodically, but then within those domains, they used the data they were getting from the focus groups to generate the, the sub-themes. So Jeff, tell us a little bit more. Sure. And then one more thing to add, again, to commend the authors and in response to Brooke's question too, is the authors also intentionally, after each interview, they went through and coded each of these interviews and looked at these themes. And even after um, pulling together these themes, they still um, had two confirmatory focus groups. And then in these two focus groups, they checked, were there any additional themes that came up? And there weren't. So they decided at that time, yes, we have definitely reach saturation and there's not really any additional themes or content that's coming out. They didn't just stop, you know, and not even confirm that. So they did a great job there with making sure that they had adequate numbers. Yeah. So moving along into table two. So we started off by looking at barriers and this is something that is very common in qualitative research to look at both barriers and facilitators. So it was nice to see this. And the most common barrier by far was ineffective interpretation. And that's something that didn't really surprise me, but uh, EMS clinicians on scene having difficulty um, with interpretation, even if they had someone on scene maybe or utilize a language line, it didn't always work so well. And what's awesome about qualitative research is getting these rich quotes. So the authors, uh, study authors, probably have many of these quotes, but decided that this is a particularly great quote. For example, right here, you can see sometimes you just get this long lag and you're not really sure, really have very little confidence. So that um, is a great example of working through these language lines that yes, on paper, you have this interpretation system, which yes, you can call it up and the person on the other line does speak the language, but it's not always easy to facilitate um, trying to understand what's going on with your patient and having this third party caller on the other line. So that's something that did not, um, didn't surprise me at all. And then the second most common barrier was this unclear acuity of 
patient's condition. And that's something I hadn't really thought about, but it definitely made sense how um, you have patients and a lot of our exam is often in the history. If their vitals are unremarkable, there's no obvious life threats. A lot of it is just talking to our patient, trying to get good understanding of what exactly is going on, why they called 911, what's different today. And that's something that we take for granted in patients who we can communicate easily with. And they give this great impression, say great, but unfortunate example of a patient with abdominal pain. So pretty common complaint. And the vitals were fine. But then this patient who was transported um, BLS, it seems like, on the ramp. So unloading this patient from the ambulance had a massive MI. Um, and unclear what exactly happened after and not clear that being able to communicate with this patient would have avoided it, but it's something that was obviously very distressing to this EMT when this happened. And then the third major, oh, did you have something, Dr. Crow? Oh, I always have something. <laughs> I just think, and, you know, could certainly hold for the discussion, but I think these first two themes are, are really important and the authors actually ended up digging in more to these themes. So the ineffective interpretation question comes up multiple times and there's different layers to this particular question. And I, I thought it was really interesting to dig in as you read through the full paper, you can see uh, the different layers of this. So one is that they perceive that there was a lag on behalf of the of the professional interpretation service. And they actually preferred to have somebody on scene do the interpretation for them, which can introduce its own host of biases. You can think about if the patient doesn't want to disclose something in front of a family member, or if in the case where you're having a child do it, do they understand the word for high blood pressure? I was just working in a medical clinic in Mexico last week, and I had a small child interpreting with me, which I speak fluent Spanish, but uh, he was helping. And I would tell him, okay, ask her if she has high blood pressure. And he wouldn't know the word for high blood pressure and translated it interestingly. And I was like, okay, I'm going to step in here, but you can imagine how on scene this can complicate the assessment and treatment. So the, the use of professional versus uh, patient or bystander or interpreter is a really important theme here that I wanted to highlight. Um, and then this, this theme of unclear acuity, I know that we're going to get into as well. So I won't do any spoiler alerts on this one, but the when we get to the solution section, how they approach this is really interesting. I thought it was really interesting too, Jeff. We started the podcast talking about how there's things in our system that may not be setting us up for success, that we are, our goal is to do the best we can for our patient. This really highlighted it. If I, if I were managing a system, I would say, you have the language line. We've given you this thing you need to be successful. Having used it in the field, I agree with these providers. It was my last resort. If I had to use it, I would. So we're talking about how this patient was there a system failure for this patient who had an MI on the ramp? As a system, as a system director, I might think, no, we've given you the resources. But until I hear from the providers, which is what the study did, saying it's my last resort, I don't think it's effective. Even trying to figure out what language the patient speaks, what dialect they speak, and then trying to get that to language is difficult. So again, the the things that are supposed to be set up for success here may actually be hindering our providers. And I thought this study, this point in particular, teased that out really well. Absolutely. And I did notice that we have a question in the chat I want to bring in before we hit the next theme. So Esmeralda was asking about how the authors defined patients with limited English proficiency. And was there a definition that was given to the participants before, during the focus groups to have in mind while they were talking about this? So Tony, I'll let you take that one on. You know, did the did the script say anything about what is a patient with LAP, or is there anything else that was given as guidance for those participants? So they didn't, and I, I want to make the point here that that's for something like this, that's okay, right? So we're we're not talking about a qualitative study where we want to get a a specific definition of what um, uh, limited English proficiency is, right? This is this is a qualitative study where we're trying to understand how providers interact and feel about patients who they um, believe have limited English proficiency. So it's a little bit of a different question um, and a little bit of a different take. If we were if we were doing a quantitative study, we certainly would want to have a, a defined specific definition uh, that we asked our, our uh, respondents. But here, 
it's okay to give some wiggle room there and let the providers um, determine what that is amongst themselves or in, in their own head so they can answer their questions truthfully. And it is a really great question with a lot of complexities to it. So this sets the stage for more work. Like most good research, it raises more questions as it answers a few. So it, I, I think the point around, oh, well, limited English proficiency isn't the same as speaking with an accent and it isn't the same as literacy or even health literacy. So all, all of these points are very important and set the stage for, are there other aspects that we should be keeping in mind as we study this further in other local communities? Great question. Great questions. All right, Jeff, take us into the next theme. Sure, and then to add on to that question again, really good question. And that is something that the authors did address a bit in their discussion and limitations. And this is something that we actually see in the barriers too, where the authors note that language is intricately linked with culture and also race and ethnicity. And we see this here. And I think the authors purposefully sort of left it vague. They did, uh, in the interview, just give a brief overview saying that we're talking about uh, patients who have limited English proficiency, and then just continued onwards, since they recognize that there are a lot of other things going on at the same time, um, particularly around culture and race and ethnicity. And we see this also in the barriers continuing along that it's not always clear that it's necessarily a matter of this LEP or limited English proficiency. There also are potentially cultural differences where communication might be hindered, not because of lack of English per se, but because of cultural norms, for example, and also different perceptions around when 911 should be contacted, whether it should be earlier or later, um, and possibly the role of EMS. Some communities, you know, not many, many places still think of us as just ambulance drivers and don't necessarily realize that uh, EMTs, paramedics, EMS clinicians are doing very detailed assessments and treatments um, and something that even they could speak English very well, sort of cultural differences and what exactly is that role of EMS. So, that was interesting to see here, especially in high stress scenarios. So I'm gonna move on to table three. So looking at the facilitators to, oh, sorry, more barriers. Yes. I broke your table into two pages. It was such a long table with lots of great themes. Yeah, so this, uh, again, more issues around EMS. Um, there might be some distrust of EMS, uh, definitely, thought that we see some issues around police. So I'm not surprised here that uh, having that police involvement, often police might be there before EMS or often with EMS when there's any potential scene safety issue. And that can make issues around um, communication even more difficult, even if there's not even necessarily a language barrier, just a lot of hesitancy around when police are present since they might have different motives than EMS for being there. And then provider biases, that's always something that's uh, kind of difficult to anticipate and address, but certainly in some of these areas where the EMS clinicians may feel less comfortable um, in communities that they're not as um, comfortable in, there are definitely gonna be some barriers and a lot of these sort of high stress situations can have a lot of heightened emotion, so can make care a bit more difficult there. Absolutely. And I think these are the things that we don't even notice in terms of provider bias. Oh, I have this feeling about being in this area, but why am I uncomfortable? Uh, and one more point to highlight before I let you dive into facilitators and strategies uh, is the, the authors make this comment as well. The timing of this study is important and to think about the events that have occurred since the time that these data were collected in 2018 is important as well to think could, you know, recent events have impacted how we would feel now. So this is something to continue to watch and to get to continue to look at in future research. Absolutely. Yeah. We have to look at all the results in the context of when it happened and situation I was collected in. I mean, this is all in Seattle, big city. 
there. Um, so now moving along into the actual facilitators and strategies to potentially improve or enhance pre-hospital care. So, so I find this really powerful that, you know, it would be easy to just do a study where we measure and we see there's a disparity. Everything's terrible. There's all these barriers. Everything's terrible. But the authors did a really important thing when they switched to, hey, what are the things that work well that we might want to replicate? What are the things that improve care and make it easier to communicate with patients who have limited English proficiency? And what are some future directions of, or ways that we could make this better? And so that's what this next section really dives into. Yeah, thanks for setting the stage, Dr. Crow. So number one most common was having an interpreter on scene, not having to utilize that language line, the lags, that awkwardness of having a third party on the speakerphone. So having that interpreter on scene, definitely a major facilitator. And that's something, it might be patient's family member, it might be one of the other EMS crew members, and not always clear who this interpreter is, but having someone, even if it's a unofficial, not really a trained interpreter, interpreter can definitely help out. The authors even talk about in the text having a five-year-old, uh, five-year-old child of one of the patients who spoke perfect English um, and very fluent in English, but being a five-year-old doesn't know complex medical terms. So that second facilitator of simplifying speech. So this is something that, especially with those patients who might speak some English, but aren't fully fluent, being able to simplify speech can make it a bit easier. Um, might have to alter our standard line of questioning in terms of getting that history, but making things more simple, more sort of yeses and nos, and uh, can definitely facilitate that communication and care on scene. Next is that barrier we talked about, sort of severe or unstable patients. But at the same time, if someone is presenting as very sick, uh, we're probably able to recognize based on that patient's physical presentation or their vital signs or obvious trauma, major bleeding, that we got to take care of them. And yes, I mean, it would be nice to get some history, but it's probably not going to change a lot of what is happening with this patient. So that was interesting to see both in the barriers and facilitators that uh, these patients, as they say, it doesn't matter what language they speak when we're treating them. Um, so we're going to get some lines, flutter valve, do what else we have to do to address those obvious life threats. Yeah, I thought this one was really interesting that they saw that as a facilitator as well. The patient's so sick, I know exactly what to do. It's like, you know, an ACLS, well, if I let it go long enough, it's going to be a mega code and then I know what to do. Um, but in this case, you know, oh, well, if it's critical, I know exactly what to do. And they noted a few times in the study that patients with limited English proficiency were more likely to be presenting with more severe uh, conditions, whether that was trauma or medical emergency. And this also goes to an important point, which comes up a couple of times in the themes is that there's a perception of there's probably a delay in seeking care. And we talk about trust and mistrust, um, but that delay is a really important point related to patient outcomes. And I'll take a moment to plug another scoping review that is in PEC and it's open access as well. We've highlighted on this podcast too, around outcomes and pre-hospital care for uh patients belonging to racial and ethnic minorities. And some of these same findings come up in that there's a delay in 911 activation. And so to, to see this as a good thing from the clinician standpoint is okay in terms of, I know it's, there's no ambiguity, there's no discretion in my protocol. I know exactly what to do. However, you know, as public health people, we should be thinking upstream in terms of, Hey, it's really bad that we're waiting this long until we are activating the 911 system when we know that early activation is related to better outcomes. Um, I kept thinking, gosh, technology could help us with this one, right? We can, if we could just link the pre-hospital PE uh, patient care record to the hospital patient care record, all of a sudden I don't need to ask all the history questions because now all of a sudden, if there's a language barrier, I can plug your name into my computer and I can get a lot of that information. I can start figuring, I just, I kept thinking reading almost all of these, like technology is there. We just need to connect the dots, um, whether it's the language line or whether it's the, just having your patient care records in front of you makes all of this a whole lot easier. So, um, I guess, um, for future research, that's our million dollar idea, but, um, that's what kept recurring to me. 
It's a great future idea in the world where we're talking about chat GPT, take it over the world. And we're very worried about all of the things coming with that's a positive outlook on, Hey, is there a place where technology might actually serve us here? And definitely we saw in one of the deep dives, which we can look at the supplementary tables, the clinicians preferred to use like Google translate live on the scene versus waiting for the language line. Um, so how can we use technology in these cases to facilitate? So there's definitely some room for using it as an adjunct, not to replace a clinician, but as an important adjunct to our care. Great point. I thought they drilled down a little bit too in the paper on the having someone else translate on scene. Hopefully it's a family member, it brings up all of the privacy concerns that come with HIPAA, but also part of communicating with the patient is building trust, building reports, not just getting information from a patient. Um, I've, there's probably a lot of it that's lost, especially if you're talking to someone that doesn't know this patient very well, that you know a neighbor may or may not have a good relationship with this patient. Are they comfortable sharing their intimate details of their medical condition with this person that we have found on scene? Um, so I, while it may get us some information about their history and their presenting condition, it really sort of steamrolls right over all of the building rapport and trust with patients um, without having some trust between yourself, the interpreter, and the patient. Exactly. Yeah, really good points and definitely agree that curious to see where this technology goes. And I'm a big fan of Google Translate myself. It's just using it um, last week with the patient. But uh, also something I found interesting here with one of these facilitators of only obtaining that essential patient history on the scene. And that makes sense. We're not going to be spending all this time waiting on this language line or trying to get a family member to come over to the house who maybe isn't on scene initially. And looking at the discussion, actually, the authors brought up that there's quite a bit of literature that shows that patients with LEP actually have similar on-scene times or even shorter compared to patients without LEP. And that makes sense that these EMS clinicians, not sure if they're rushing or being less thorough, not quite sure sort of all the reasons why, but the studies do show that they're, uh, instead of being increased time on scene, maybe working with language lines or interpreters is actually a shorter on scene time. So just, hey, we gotta go, you wanna go to the hospital? All right, let's get in the ambulance and go. So a bit faster turnaround there, um, possibly, because of these communication issues and recognizing that just not going to gather a full history, unfortunately. Um, we are still a lot more to review. So want to go to the next end of the table, sorry, the next part of this table. So a lot more really good information here and excellent quotes. So um, EMS adaptability, I think this is great. I mean, EMS is still a pretty young profession and seeing that we're able to really adapt in these situations um, and trying to be culturally sensitive um, in some situations, maybe not touching a patient because of cultural norms uh, and trying to adapt that exam, trying to be as thorough as possible without, um, without violating any cultural norms. Um, Nonverbal communication definitely makes sense. I mean, a lot of these patients, even if we can't talk to them with words, maybe pointing, um, there could be other ways to communicate with these patients. Conservative treatment and transport decisions, that's definitely something that was discussed a good bit by these patients. So many of these patients, they just decided to transport, even if their initial presentation was something that many of these Patients, had they not been LEP, maybe would have stayed on scene a bit longer, maybe would have led to a refusal since uh, we couldn't really gain all the information, gain all the history. Many more patients were actually just transported to figure it out at the hospital where presumably the hospital has more um, resources. Yeah, and we'll take a deeper dive into this one. They actually have a great figure coming up looking at the EMS clinician decision-making when it comes to interacting with a patient with limited English proficiency. So we'll, we'll definitely take a deep dive into that one. But I thought it also stuck out for me too, is that 
the path of least resistance or the path of that's going to make me sleep best at night is to go to the hospital. Whereas is that really the best thing for the patient's interest? And so balancing that is a really tough act in a lot of cases, especially when access to a, a professional interpreter is going to be limited. Exactly. And then two more things here. So this extra time and resources on scene. So still, even though the studies have borne out that overall scene times are similar or shorter in those calls that are clearly, obviously, low acuity or that um, just really unclear what's going on, but it's not life threat, spending a bit more time on scene, uh, these medics are talking about that definitely can help facilitate that process. And then finally, police presence for crowd control. I thought that was interesting. I could see how in a traumatic or traumatic situation, both maybe literally and just in terms of chaos going on, how police could definitely facilitate some sense of crowd control. But I thought this was interesting seeing here, since that's something I've been in many, many situations that Limited English proficiency has nothing to do with it, and the police presence can still facilitate crowd control. So wasn't quite sure how language came in here or culture for that matter. There are just a lot of situations, um, traffic, uh, collisions, cardiac arrests, where definitely having the police there and sort of give EMS some breathing room can potentially facilitate patient care. Absolutely. And I know that we're, we're dwindling on time. So now that we've explored those facilitators and the ideas for improvements, let's take a look at their figure. And you can walk us through if you want, just at a high level in terms of they took all of these qualitative findings and they made a really interesting flowchart in terms of, well, how do we think the decision-making works when an EMS clinician, whether that be an EMT or a paramedic in this case, approaches a patient who has limited English proficiency. Exactly. I thought this was really interesting to see this conceptual framework, which again, they took with all this, all these themes and put together this figure and showing that um, that basic examination that sort of do any life threats exist, sick or not sick, that isn't really affected by that LEP status. But then that patient history and really interpreting, being able to understand what's going on, that of course is probably affected by LEP. And then this also definitely affects their decision in this system, whether to upgrade a VLS call to ALS or something is potentially ALS and VLS is on scene first to cancel the paramedics. So that was interesting. And then looking at both these patient factors around transport as well as the EMS clinician factors. So a lot of it uh, goes to patient preference. I mean, if these patients are clearly expressing that they want maybe EMS examination, but they don't want transport, then um, that's probably going to influence what's going to happen. And many of those patients aren't going to be transported by EMS. Maybe they'll be transporting themselves with the personal vehicle or staying at home and that's something that definitely is going to be affected here with communication. So these are all uh, in those darker boxes. And then the fidelity, their ability to interpret the information that's going on, expectations of EMS. We talked about that a bit before, that uh, this isn't maybe necessarily language, but more so culture often in terms of what do EMS clinicians do? Are they more just transport or providing uh, detailed examination, care, treatment, and then the actual factors of the firefighter EMTs themselves. So based on their assessments, um, whether there is some, something that they're missing, so potentially some life threat uh, or some critical piece about patient history or information, and then dispatch information too always kind of uh, sets the picture for what's going in, rightfully or wrongfully. Um, walking into that call, sort of already having that chief complaint, even if it's not a, the patient's chief complaint, if we're told we're going into breathing problems versus a sick person, it's going to be a little bit different. 
Um, and then was interesting to see the paramedic side, but this is similar, but they have that more nuanced examination as listed as something that is on the paramedic side, which I would argue that uh, I'm not quite sure why it's just there. I think EMTs are just as capable of providing more nuanced um, examination, maybe don't have necessarily all the tools there, but um, it was just interesting to see this binary uh, EMT and paramedic level assessment and transport decision. And then ultimately, what's happening? Where do these patients go? Uh, are they going with EMS? Are they uh, staying at home? Are they being transported? But are they transporting by personal vehicle or in the ambulance? So I think this was a really great figure that kind of summarized all these different factors, tried to just put it into these small boxes to show sort of what that potential thought process is um, what's going on here. Absolutely. And, and for me, the part that stands out and why I like this image so much is that on first glance, I can get a really quick summary just by the coloration of the boxes of affected by limited English proficiency, not affected by limited English proficiency. I could see very clearly that there's very few boxes that are not affected mm -hmm. and very many that are. So that's something for us to keep in mind as we design our toolkit to help us better communicate and achieve better health outcomes in populations with limited English proficiency. And so I know I have the unpopular task of keeping us on track and on time. And I do want to spend a good chunk of time here at the end looking at it's not all, you know, despair. There's great recommendations here that surfaced from the frontline clinicians themselves in terms of how can we improve and, and recognize because it's hard to recognize that, you know, we might not be providing care the same, even though that is our conscious intention. So I do want us to, we'll sit on table four and we'll open it up to the other panelists. But for those of you who are tuning in live, take a look at table four. For those watching the recording on our YouTube channel, the slides will be available. But these recommendations for improvement were really critical. But I see that Dr. Toon has a question, so I'll turn it to you. Hi there. Can you hear me? Okay, so uh, first of all, like everyone else has said, this is a great study and thank the authors for all their hard work. And the hardest part is just getting writing it and getting it published. This makes me think about the role of education. As I was thinking back when I was a, uh, a doing initial paramedic education as well as continuing education, I realized I don't think we ever put scenarios together for our personnel that exposed them to dealing with this kind of situation. So. I'm not now, as I think in hindsight, I'm not surprised that some of the answers that the EMS providers gave, considering they weren't exposed during an initial or continuing. I'm, this, I'm not saying broad-based. I'm sure there's agencies that do address it, but I'm just thinking, at least in my experience, we never really addressed it. So there's probably a role for that as a, an education point of view, not only in initial, but in continuing education uh, how we can approach this and, and try to make it better versus like I did, like all of this group does, is we figured it out, you know, on the job, on the incident and had to make those decisions happen then. I think that's such a good and important point. And the education about EMS was an area that came from the clinicians themselves, but not in the way that you might think. So I think there's a really important nuance here is that they said, Hey, I think education on local cultural norms could be very helpful. And the phrase, nothing about us without us comes to mind. That should be taught by people who are from the local community, from that culture, and not some general textbook definition. I can think of some horror stories in textbooks that have been published on stereotypes, right? So to avoid that, because general education on cultural norms were not perceived as very helpful. And I think, you know, as a field question, I would agree with that. However, having local education, improvement science occurring at the local level could be a really powerful tool as we approach these topics of cultural humility and what is the cultural expectation and that trust building and rapport with the community. So I think the education and that community EMS interactions that you see in table four go hand in hand. Is there an opportunity to provide CPR training and have a night of food and community together? I participated in a really cool event at Wake County EMS where they did just that. They invited the community in for some barbecue and sat down and asked some tough questions of, hey, do you trust us? and actually got that feedback from the community themselves and heard about some of the behaviors that 
you know, we would think we're normal as EMS clinicians walking in and out of somebody's house, in and out, in and out. But to that patient was like, Hey, I'm not used to that. And that was really off-putting to me to hear that from the community themselves was very powerful. So I, I think education and interaction with the community are really, really good suggestions for how we can improve. I agree. And I thought it was, uh, I thought it was really interesting that they said they wanted education on, um, to, to educate the, the, communities. We're going to go work with the community groups to know what to expect when EMS arrives. I was hoping to see something like, pay me to go take a second, a, a Spanish class, put the initial education pieces together. We have, we practice domestic violence responses. We practice um, cases where someone doesn't speak the same language. It always amazes me, especially on our paramedic side, the number of languages that are spoken in the class. We put this great scenario together and then someone speaks the language and you're like, oh, the learning objective didn't get met. Um, but we're going to go educate the public on what they're going to get when we arrive. I think that's great. But where is the education for the provider? Again, we have, we clearly know what languages our communities speak. Why aren't we working to make sure that those got to be some providers that want to learn that language? I think there's some great opportunity there. Teach me how to use the language line. That's a huge problem for me. Show me how to fix it um, is what I, I was hoping to see as well. I agree with that. And I think that also leads really nicely into the next bullet that's right below that in table four, which is diversification of the EMS workforce. And to get creative, again, going upstream, not to just say, woe is me, nobody diverse is going to EMT school. Well, where are we recruiting from? How are we putting out those recruitments? What languages in our flyers? Are we only posting in certain Facebook groups? Like, how are we finding our population and getting creative about well, can I go to a place of community gathering? What if I went to the local convenience store and hung out? Where do people hang out in that community? Um, and recruiting that way to get voices of the community serving the community, I think, was a really great point that was pulled out here as well. And now I know we're in our last few minutes, so I'll ask for any final thoughts from any of our panelists before I'll take us out. But you know, if there's one thing that I can leave you all with, like read this table for, it's super powerful. It is the recommendations from the front line on, hey, we recognize there's some things that could be better and not just woe is me. Here's the things I think we could do. And I'm sure in the chat, I've seen so many of you have ideas. Let's share those best practices instead of dwelling on what's not working uh, so that we can refine those. If you have something that's working well, I encourage you to publish it, whether that's in a peer reviewed publication or uh, a, a you know, blog post, anything is good to share those ideas. So lots of great ideas, including some folks do use language barrier scenarios. And I think that was really powerful. Again, yeah, I think this was a terrific study and definitely enjoyed seeing this uh, study being published and open access. So we can all look at this and look at the interview guide. And looking at these recommendations, something that I also thought was great was starting small. Yes, ideally, we would have EMS providers who could be fluent in these languages, but just knowing a couple of words, simple words like hello, goodbye, pain, you know, one through 10 numbers to try to get a pain scale, simple words like head or chest, just starting small, that could definitely, you know, I'm not going to get as far as being fluent, but that could definitely help a ton, just knowing a couple of words in some of the most common languages. And then really this idea of diversification of EMS workforce, we can see here that even in Seattle, um, pretty diverse community, but uh, it's going to be hard to get folks uh, that come in that are fluent in these languages if our EMS clinicians don't exactly look like those in the community. So more of these community EMS interactions, showing people what we do, hopefully getting excited about what we do with these touch a truck events, I think can make a world of difference and won't be overnight. It'll definitely take time, but got to start somewhere. Yeah, and before we go, I just want to reiterate um, uh, commendations to the authors. This is a lot of work, uh, a whole lot of work to put this together. And they wrote a great study that I think is a significant addition to literature, um, gives us all uh, an idea of where we may want to go and some, some things to think about to uh, improve care for these patients. So um, great study. I'm glad we got a chance to review it. And I'm glad they did all this work to publish it. I would applaud the authors uh, in EMS. Oftentimes we complain that our voices aren't heard, that our agencies don't listen to us. Here's an agency that actually went to their provider, said, we want to hear what you have to say and went and published it. Um, it's there. If you want to follow their questions on what they asked, that's all public. So uh, if you don't feel like you have a voice, your agency has an opportunity here to improve that.
Dr. Toon, any final thoughts before I take us out? Hearing none, I will tear. Oh, you take it, you. take it out. All right, let's do it. Um, I, in case you couldn't get enough of EMS research, which I hope is surely the case, we're going to be back here with the Education Research Journal Club, focused specifically on EMS education on Friday, May 26th. And then we will have the next edition of the clinical podcast that you're listening to right now on the second Monday of the month, which will be June 12th. Thank you all again for listening for such an interactive and engaging discussion. Please share those awesome ideas that you all have. And I do want to commend the authors one more time. This was a fabulous study and a great discussion. So with that, I thank you all. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at pcrfpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website, prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education, providing educational tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey. And ESO, dedicated to improving community health and safety through the power of data. Mm -hmm.